This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, last meal chef from the past here, writing this about a month before it comes out. I know you're here for some southern hospitality and executions, but it's December, and I feel the need to remind you lovely listeners that you need to get your asses over to the post office and get your packages mailed before it's too late. Like, right now. Pause this and go handle it, or listen to me on the drive over there. Better to have them arrive a few days early than a few days late. Looking at my schedule, if you have international packages you haven't shipped out by now, you're, you're probably SOL. There'll be New Year's gifts, if you're lucky. Drive safe in the snow, and be nice to your delivery workers. They're fucking tired, and they need a day off. Also, in case you couldn't tell, I'm currently dying of plague. So I apologize for any voice cracks and coughs that may find their way in here. Kids are fucking germ factories, and my son caught something that has had me begging for death. I'm pretty sure Santa is bringing me a new desk and microphone for Christmas, so expect better quality content from me soon. Nestled between Luzerana and Alabama is a state that isn't really famous for anything that I'm aware of, except a big-ass river. And mud pie, is that a thing in Mississippi? Or is it some weird sex thing like an Alabama hot pocket that I should go back and edit out? Don't Google that. You don't want to know what that is. In case you couldn't tell, I have absolutely zero knowledge on this southern state. The only thing I know about Mississippi is that they still have the death penalty and they're more than happy to use it. Their execution list is insane. The year 1804 saw the first recorded executions in Mississippi. The first on the list is a double execution of Wiley Harp and James May, who were two members of a group of outlaws. Nearly 400 people have been executed here since 1804. There was a brief period of about nine years between 2012 and 2021 where the state didn't execute anyone, but they've been pretty consistent about putting people down throughout history. Mississippi has used every execution method except the firing squad. They have a large number of gas chamber executions, which surprised the fuck out of me. Like most other states, their primary method is lethal injection. As you may be aware if you watch my Rumble videos, this state is one of a handful that has also authorized the use of electrocution, firing squad, and nitrogen hypoxia. This episode may end up being a long one, as Mississippi has a rich history of killing criminals. There's a last meal in here that puts Lawrence Russell Brewer to shame as well. So grab a saxophone and a boat, two things you probably never thought you'd need at the same time. We're heading to the Magnolia State. Crimes against children are, in most people's eyes, the worst crimes a person can commit. There is something especially disgusting about someone harming people who haven't been on this earth long enough to do anything truly wrong. They're innocent. I'm going to start this episode off with 
a fucking nasty one. I'll warn you now, Mississippi is full of nasty ones. If that ain't your cup of sweet tea, I suggest maybe coming back next week. I'm going to tell you this first story backwards, as there are a handful of people out there who think that this man shouldn't have suffered the way he did, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Jimmy Lee Gray was executed by gas chamber on September 2, 1983. He was the first person to be put down by the state of Mississippi after the death penalty was reinstated. His execution was botched. The gas chamber used at the time had a vertical iron bar behind the chair for some reason. There was no strap, headrest, or other mechanism to restrain Gray's head as the gas was released. Gray thrashed around after the execution started, and he ended up bashing his head into the bar multiple times before he lost consciousness. I can't find a description of exactly what this resulted in, but it was apparently gruesome enough that the prison officials wanted to clear the gas chamber just eight minutes after the gas was released and spare the witnesses from seeing him in such a state. Reporters counted Gray's agonized moans. There were 11. He very obviously suffered in his final moments. In the end, it came to light that the executioner was drunk during the procedure. Gray was born in Whittier, California in 1949. There's not much available on his early life, but as a teenager he was living in Parker, Arizona, and began dating a girl named Elda Louise Prince. Her family took him in, made him feel welcome in their family, and even bought him clothes when he was down on his luck. They all went on fishing trips and other family outings together. On January 5, 1968, Elda was supposed to leave school early to head to a doctor's appointment. Her mother would be picking her up from said appointment around 4.30 p.m. When Opal Prince arrived to collect her daughter, the receptionist at the doctor's office informed her that Elda had not shown up to her appointment. Opal didn't panic. Instead, she just assumed Elda had forgotten about the appointment and taken the bus home, as she always did. A school bus arrived as scheduled, but Elda wasn't on it. The police were called, and a missing persons report was filed. Jimmy Gray went with the Prince family to help search for Elda. As you may have guessed, police had immediate suspicions about Gray. It's always the boyfriend, after all. Something about his shoes raised red flags, and he was questioned the day after the search. Gray led police to the culvert near the Colorado River where he had left her body. After school that day, Gray met up with his girlfriend and a fight broke out between them. Elda had been strangled and her throat had been cut. Shoe prints from the crime scene were an exact match to the shoes Gray was wearing during the search. Arizona as you may remember, is a death penalty state. There's currently a moratorium thanks to that dumb bitch who won the last election, but they definitely had the death penalty back then. And Gray was 18 at the time of the murder, so his age wouldn't save him. But this episode is about Mississippi, and we're nowhere near Mississippi, so I think you know where this is going. Gray was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 20 years to life. The trial judge remarked that he was a dangerous individual, but that had no weight when he came up for parole. 
He was released after serving just six years of his sentence. Gray moved back home to California before making his way over to Mississippi. On June 25, 1976, a three-year-old girl named Darissa Jean Scales disappeared from the apartment complex where she lived with her parents. She was reported missing at about 5 p.m. Neighbors told police that they'd seen Darissa with a man in a red Volkswagen who also lived at the apartment complex. Gray showed up later, driving his red Volkswagen and wearing wet pants. He claimed that he'd been swimming in the pool at the complex. I don't know about any of you, but as a fat child, I always preferred to swim in my clothes and then regretted the fuck out of it because walking around in wet clothes sucks. Free the gut, I guess. And the thunder thighs. Point is, no one in their right mind is going to be walking around in wet pants. Then again, Jimmy Gray was definitely not in his right mind. Gray was questioned because, like before, he was acting weird and it drew the suspicion of the police. He admitted that he had taken Darissa out for a ride on some country roads and touched her. According to Gray, the little girl then wandered off and fell into a ditch. He saved her from this ditch and put her into the trunk of his car before driving her to a bridge over Black Creek and throwing her into the water. At 3.30 a.m., he led the police to the crime scene. I don't do content warnings, but if any episode needs one, it's this one, and it's about to get terrible. The medical examiner who did three-year-old Darissa's autopsy found a number of truly fucked up things. She had been gagged, sodomized, and had her underwear shoved down her throat. Her cause of death was suffocation from being held face down in the mud. Her lungs had mud in them. You fucking tell me that Jimmy Gray didn't deserve to bash his head into an iron bar while he suffocated. Trial began in December of 1976, and Shoe Prince would once again help convict this monster of what he did. DNA wasn't advanced enough to link Gray to the murder, but semen was discovered in Darissa's body. After just an hour of deliberation, Gray was found guilty and sentenced to death by gas chamber. People sentenced to death get an automatic appeal. This case was no different. Gray was given a new trial in 1978 and allowed to speak directly to the jury. This didn't help his case. The same verdict was reached, and this second jury also recommended the death penalty, citing Doris's age and the sadistic acts Gray committed as aggravating factors. More appeals were to come, including one that brought up the cruelty of the gas chamber. I'm about as pro-death penalty as they come, but the gas chamber is a really fucking terrible way to go, so that holds some merit in my eyes. Gray would sit on death row for a few years, fighting his execution with everything he could come up with. On September 1st, 1983, the U.S. Supreme Court finally said enough was enough and dismissed his last appeals in a 6-3 decision. He was to be executed the next day. Chief Justice Warren Burger said after this decision, this case illustrates the recent pattern of calculated efforts to frustrate valid judgments after painstaking judicial review over a number of years. 
at some point there must be finality. Translated from legalese, that means, the jury sentenced him to die, stop wasting time, and let's get it done. As is usually the case, a spiritual advisor objected to Gray's execution and claimed that he was a devout Christian who committed crimes. He's a sensitive, caring, and humorous person. I want us to focus on Jimmy's humanity because I am sick and tired of hearing about the crime. I didn't think I needed to say this again, but uh, God hates pedophiles. Gray's last words, if he had any, are unavailable. I'm assuming it was just pained groans. His last meal was strawberries, unspecified Mexican food, and milk. Revenge murders are a lot more common than you'd think. It's like vigilante justice in the eyes of the perpetrator. Some wrong was done, and the only way to rectify it is by taking the life of the guilty party. Some might argue that the death penalty itself is just a revenge murder. Maybe it is, but it's often justified. This next murder was most definitely not justified. So many of these stories I've told have started out with a group of people drinking beer and driving around. It's not a good idea. Pretty sure I said this in the last episode, but alcohol goes best with pizza and adult swim. On the night of December 10th, 1998, a man named Dale Bishop was driving around with his friends Mark, Jesse, Corey, and Charlie. They were headed to another friend's apartment in Saltillo, Mississippi. The Utah in me wants to give that a Hispanic spin, but this is the South, so I don't actually know. The friends that lived in this apartment were Ricky and Rachel. I'm not going to go through the trouble of last names because they really aren't important. Jesse, after having a few beers at the apartment, decided that he wanted to go buy more beer and had asked Ricky to go with him. Dale came along as well, for whatever reason. Mark had driven everyone to the apartment in his car, so he would also be handling the beer run. Unfortunately for them, the store was closed, so they returned back to Ricky's apartment. On the drive back, Jesse turned to Mark and asked him why he ratted on his little brother. Mark claimed that he didn't. This started an argument, which ended with Jesse grabbing a hammer off the floorboard and hitting Mark between the eyes with it. The car slowly coasted to a stop, and Mark begged Jesse not to hit him again. Dale, who was sitting behind Mark, put him in a headlock so that Jesse could hit him again. The group played musical chairs before driving off into a field. After Jesse stopped the car, Mark jumped out and ran. Dale was instructed to go after him. You're probably wondering why the fuck there was a hammer in this car to begin with. Dale was a carpenter by trade and claimed he had brought it with because he intended to work on his truck. This could have just been an excuse he came up with on the spot, though. The man really knew his hammers, going into great detail about how this one was heavier than anything that could be bought in Mississippi. When Dale finally caught up to Mark, he dragged him back to the car and forced him to get on his knees. Dale and Jesse began kicking him, and Jesse hit him with the hammer a few more times. At one point, Ricky was asked to hold Mark so that Dale could go grab some beers. A 
fine group of gentlemen, let me fucking tell you. These people are a far cry from my Alabama mother-in-law and Twitch's loser Anna neighbor. Southern hospitality exists, but apparently not in fucking Mississippi. To his credit, Ricky did try to get them to stop beating Mark, but they wouldn't listen. After all was said and done, Dale had to dislodge the hammer from Mark's throat. I can't say for sure, but I don't think it was shoved inside. I think it was brought down with enough force to get it stuck. On the way back to Ricky's apartment, they talked about finding a shovel so they could bury Mark. Once they arrived back to the apartment, Ricky gave the men some clean clothes to change into. After the group left, Ricky and Rachel called the police. I think this dude handled it pretty well. I mean, what would you do in that situation? Ricky took the police to the crime scene, where Mark's body and vehicle were discovered. There was also a shovel on the ground nearby. Dale and Jesse fled as soon as they saw the police car. They hid in the woods until they were arrested on December 13th. The forensic pathologist who conducted Mark's autopsy testified that there were 23 different injuries to the hand, neck, and head that were either caused by a blunt object brought down with force or a sharp instrument like the claw side of a hammer. These injuries were separate from the scrapes and bruises that were caused by being kicked. Defensive wounds to the hands and arms were also noted. Mark tried to save himself. His cause of death was cranial cerebral trauma, secondary to blunt force trauma to the head. Also included in this cause of death were tears of the voice box with aspiration of blood. What a fucking horrible way to go. As previously mentioned, the entire motive for this crime was Mark allegedly snitching on Jesse's younger brothers. According to Dale, they had been charged with 9 or 10 counts of grand larceny or burglary, all because of what Mark had told police. I always thought that stitches are supposed to get stitches, not a hammer to the throat, but what the hell do I know? Jesse later admitted to police that he hit Mark with the hammer at least 16 times because he was upset at him for being a snitch. Both Dale and Jesse were found guilty of capital murder for the death of Marcus Gentry. Jesse Johnson was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This motherfucker appealed. Wasn't enough to walk away with his life. He argued that the prosecution didn't provide enough evidence of kidnapping. Pretty sure having your friend physically restrain someone while you drive out into a field counts as kidnapping, you dumb bastard. Dale Leo Bishop was executed by lethal injection on July 23, 2008. Isn't it weird how the law works? Two people found guilty of the same crime get different punishments, and arguably the less guilty one gets the harsher punishment. They both committed a heinous act for no good reason, but only one of them had to pay with their life. It is a strange world we live in. Dale's last words were, To Mark's family, I would like to express my sincerest apologies. It was a senseless act. It was a needless act. The world is worse off without him. 
to my family, I love you. It's going to be all good. For those who oppose the death penalty and want to see it end, our best bet is to vote for Barack Obama because his supporters have been working behind the scenes to end this practice. God bless America. It's been great living here. That's all. Leave it to a murderer to seek salvation through the Democratic Party. That's nothing new. Newsflash, my dude. The Democrats don't give a shit about you, and we're happy to lock you up for life for selling weed back in the day. They ain't coming to save you. I think that's been proven. His last meal was three pieces of pineapple supreme pizza, cherries and cream ice cream, and four root beers. I'd say he wanted diabetic shock to get him before the drugs could, but I've got one coming up later that makes this guy's last meal look like nothing. Mississippi is one of those states that you can kind of see the race issue coming into play with the death penalty. I scoured the list of all 370-something condemned people, and a huge percentage of them were black. This is the South, so, you know, it's to be expected, at least in history. Race is a huge issue when it comes to the capital punishment debate. If we were debating decades ago, it would be a strong point to make. In today's time, it doesn't play a part at all. I went over this in the double standard episode. The real bias is with gender, not race. But I will admit that in the 40s, race probably did play a big part in who got executed. Willie Bragg was convicted of murdering his wife in the town of Loosedale. I'm going to level with you guys. There is basically no information on the crime itself. All I can really tell you is that he was found guilty of murdering his wife. One article I've found claims there was no substantial evidence against him, and the only reason he was convicted was because he was black. I wish I had better sources on this one, because I'd like to take a look at whatever they did have on him. He was found guilty by an all-white jury and sentenced to death. Willie Mae Bragg was executed by electrocution on October 11, 1940. His case made some pretty crazy history. He was the first person electrocuted in Mississippi, and also the first person to be electrocuted in a portable electric chair. That was apparently a thing that came about around this time. The man who owned this chair and played the role of executioner was named either Jimmy Johnson or Jimmy Thompson. I've seen both. He was an ex-Marine who performed in carnivals and drank like a fish. Not really sure what else you were expecting from a man who transported a death machine around Mississippi. He was also an ex-con, having committed a number of robberies and assaults, including an incident where he shot his neighbor after the neighbor insulted his wife. His lawyer argued that the shooting was justified because of an unwritten Southern law about defending a woman's body or personal reputation. The court accepted this defense. What the fuck, Mississippi? Holy shit. This law, of course, only applied to white men. 
So while a white man walks free for killing someone in defense of his wife's honor, a black man fries in a portable electric chair for allegedly murdering his wife. The South was a hell of a place back then. When I say Southerners are my people, this definitely isn't what I'm talking about. I'm more talking about Florida man joyriding a lawnmower in a hurricane. This kind of shit just pisses me off. Due to the time, there's nothing available on Willie Bragg's last words or last meal. There are an abundance of pictures of this execution, though, at least one of which you can find on my Instagram. This episode has me tripping a little bit because of the similarities to another episode I did a few months back. If you look up Jimmy Gray, you'll notice that he looks quite a bit like Richard Levitt from the Idaho episode. Do y'all remember what he did? Well, put your lunch away, because this next guy I'm going to tell you about gave him a run for his money as far as the brutality goes. There's not a lot available on the early life of Karen Ann Pierce. What I can tell you is that she had a twin sister named Sharon, and the two were inseparable. That's often the case with twins, isn't it? I'll link an article in my sources that shows the two together as kids. They are identical, and cute as fuck, to be honest. I wish there was more information available on the life of Karen Pierce. She was just 18 when her life was taken in one of the cruelest ways I've ever seen. Reminiscent of what happened to Marie Colette and Danette Elg. I'd prefer to remember this girl as she lived, but all I can find about her is how she died. Karen had been out drinking with her boyfriend on the night of January 11th, 1983. I guess Mississippi wasn't so strict about underage drinking and bars? The South is a whole different world. While at the bar, she was witness taking drugs and fighting with other women. I feel like me and Karen would have been great friends, seriously. Her boyfriend eventually left her at the bar to fend for herself after she refused to go home with him. Probably feels like shit about that, but he had no way of knowing what was going to happen. It's possible that Karen was taken into a bathroom and raped by several men, but there's nothing really concrete that I can find on that. A man named Thomas Evans later invited Karen to an area near a river to continue partying after the bar. His cousin Jesse Williams and another man named Michael Norwood came along with them. The group stopped at a gas station on the way out of town and made their way to a secluded area off Interstate 10, where they smoked weed and drank some beers. I imagine Karen was having a hard time staying focused on anything. I've been crossfaded before. That shit can get intense if you have too much of either thing. She apparently consented to sex with both Williams and Norwood a handful of times, but told Williams that she wanted to stop during one of those times. He didn't stop. She then asked to be taken back to the bar to get some of her belongings. They refused to take her. During the night, Karen and Williams got out of the truck and Karen ran away from him. Williams tackled her and dragged her into the woods. Rather than, 
I don't know, go save this random girl he'd picked up from the bar. Thomas Evans waited a while before going to look for the pair. He came upon Williams standing over Karen with a knife. She was badly mutilated. Evans walked away and overheard his cousin say, I'm not leaving until I'm sure she's dead. Williams came back to the truck about 15 minutes later and the men left the scene. Karen's body was found 10 days later. They took samples of her blood and it was determined that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.07 as well as traces of drugs in her system. Her cause of death was blood loss from a knife wound. The location of this wound was the area between her vagina and her rectum. Williams had cut out her genitals and her anus while she was still alive. He then slashed her throat, stabbed her in the heart, and left her to bleed out in the woods alone, all because she wanted to get away from him. I have no fucking words. This makes Richard Levitt look sane. His mugshot is... Holy fuck, you can see the crazy. Jesse Darrell Williams was executed by lethal injection on December 11, 2002. Leading up to his execution, he spent time with his family and was seen to be in good spirits until the end. Quite the opposite of the terror Karen Pierce must have felt in her final hours. His execution went on without any problems. It was a peaceful, painless death. Karen's sister Sharon later told a reporter, He died peacefully, very peacefully. My sister bled to death. I don't have hatred in my heart toward him. I don't have nothing toward him. It's just I have a pain where my sister was. Sharon battled the booze demon after Williams killed her sister, which is totally understandable. I don't know how any person can pick themselves up after a tragedy like this. I hope knowing that the monster who killed Karen is dead brings peace to her family. When asked if he had any last words, Williams said, no sir. He declined a special last meal and in fact refused to eat anything on the day of his execution. His mother opted to donate his body to University Medical Center. This one has been really heavy and fucked up. I decided to look for a more recent case and found one that is just... God, it's not as gruesome as the other ones, but it's just fucking sad. The Tunica County Sheriff's Office is seeking to lay capital murder charges in a case that remains unsolved. On November 10th, 2023, a burned-out car filled with bullet holes was found crashed near Casino Center Drive. Inside were the bodies of 23-year-old Stephen Burtz, 24-year-old Deshaun Isabel, and 25-year-old Tedniqua Moore, who was pregnant at the time of her murder. Deshaun had not been hit by any bullets, but died of injuries sustained in the crash. After I started writing this, there was an update to it. So, the man believed to be responsible for this crime has been arrested. Deontay Carnell Taylor is just 18 years old. He's facing three counts of capital murder plus a few other lesser charges. And y'all know what that means. He's facing a possible death sentence. 
keep an eye on my Rumble videos because this guy may come up again at some point. Does the name Dustin Honkin ring a bell to any of you? Well, it should. And if it doesn't, you need to go back to Iowa and give it a listen because this next story has some striking similarities. Mississippi doesn't seem to be as methed up as Iowa was, but maybe I've put too much focus on the most gruesome crimes this state has to offer instead of peeking through the blinds like a tweaker. On August 11, 1996, Jeffrey Wolf and Charlene Leeser made the six-hour trip from Houston, Texas to Jackson County, Mississippi with the goal of collecting some money. They checked into a hotel on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and Jeffrey made arrangements to meet up with a man named Sonny Milano. Later on that evening, Sonny and his girlfriend went out to dinner with Charlene and Jeffrey. During their meal, Jeffrey asked Sonny if he'd planned on going to see Gary Simmons that night. This was the friend who owed Jeffrey money. That hadn't been the plan initially, but he later decided to drop his girlfriend off and head over to see Simmons. Sonny's brother Timothy was at the house with Simmons when he arrived. Perhaps in an attempt to get the debt settled, or maybe for a more sinister purpose, Simmons asked Sonny to get in touch with Jeffrey who said he'd be over to the house shortly. Simmons then told Sonny to leave. A while later, Jeffrey arrived with his girlfriend, who took a seat on the couch in the living room. The men were all in the kitchen having a beer when Charlene overheard Jeffrey mention the money that he was owed. When I first looked into this, I assumed it was like $200. Boy, was I wrong. Between the two of them, Simmons and Timothy Milano owed Jeffrey somewhere between 12 and 20 grand. Charlene then heard gunshots and watched her boyfriend fall to the ground. Simmons grabbed her and told her not to look at Jeffrey's body. I guess she didn't listen. She saw Milano standing behind Jeffrey with a 22 caliber rifle. Simmons led the woman to a back bedroom and made her lay face down on the floor. He positioned himself on top of her and started questioning her about being a cop and asking if the couple had any drugs on them. He also asked a very chilling question, if anyone knew they were in Mississippi. Charlene became hysterical. Who wouldn't in this situation? She told Simmons that she didn't know anything and that she'd only met Jeffrey a few weeks ago. Simmons finished interrogating her and tied her hands behind her back before putting her inside a footlocker. He told Charlene that he was on a time frame and he could not mess up. Is this guy running on tweaker time or I just killed someone and need to cover it up time? The world may never know. Charlene managed to free herself from her binds and began kicking the top of the box. This attempt to get out was unsuccessful. Simmons returned a while later and got Charlene out of the box. He was naked, of course. Wasn't bad enough to murder someone in cold blood, now we have to rape his girlfriend. Charlene later testified that Simmons held a pistol to the back of her head during the assault. He told her that her survival depended on how well she performed. What a sick motherfucker. She did thankfully survive. Sorry for that spoiler, but she made it out in one piece somehow. 
Simmons tied her back up and put her in the footlocker again before moving forward with their plan to get rid of Jeffrey's body. He moved Jeffrey into the bathtub and dismembered him. With the help of Timothy Milano, Simmons scattered Jeffrey's body parts in the bayou behind his house using a boat that he'd borrowed from a neighbor earlier that night. A phone ringing woke Charlene up, and she assumed no one was in the house as it remained unanswered. She pulled together all her strength and started banging on the top of the box. The lid popped off and she was able to escape the house and run to a neighbor for help after grabbing her clothes. Police were called and Simmons was arrested. His trial began on August 25, 1997 and lasted just four days. His jury found him guilty of kidnapping, rape, and first-degree murder. For the rape and kidnapping, Simmons was given two separate life sentences. For the murder, he was handed the ultimate punishment. Timothy John Milano was convicted of kidnapping and capital murder and sentenced to life without parole, plus 30 years to run consecutively. He appealed. What is it with these Mississippi men trying to evade punishment for shit they're actually guilty of? I don't understand. This dude was the one who pulled the trigger, for fuck's sake. Milano is currently serving his sentence at MSP, which I'm assuming stands for Mississippi State Penitentiary. He was apparently moved here in August of 2023 from somewhere else. He's not getting out of this. Gary Carl Simmons was executed by lethal injection on June 20th, 2012. His was the last execution to take place before that nine-year gap I mentioned earlier. This guy did a lot of horrible shit for no good reason. I have to wonder how messed up he was at the time. I'm grateful that Charlene survived this ordeal and was able to testify and help put an end to this monster. His last words were, I've been blessed to be loved by some good people, by some amazing people. I thank them for their support. Now let's get it on so these people can go home. That's it. And this dude's last meal. Holy fucking shit. Buckle up and get some insulin ready because this is going to take a while. The last thing that Gary Simmons ate before he died was... One medium super supreme deep dish pizza from Pizza Hut. Another pizza with olives, bell pepper, tomato, sausage, and garlic. Ten eight ounce packages of Parmesan cheese. Ten eight ounce packets of ranch dressing. A family sized bag of nacho cheese Doritos. An eight ounce container of jalapeno nacho cheese. Four ounces of sliced jalapenos. Two 20 ounce cherry Cokes two large strawberry shakes, a large order of fries from McDonald's with extra mayo and ketchup, and two pints of strawberry ice cream, because them shakes definitely weren't enough. This meal amounted to nearly 29,000 calories. I'm assuming he ate it all because Mississippi didn't pull a Texas and take last meals away. I do not envy whoever had to clean up that post-execution mess. That was a rough one. 
but I think I've more than made up for the missing last meals of the past few episodes. Mississippi apparently has no limit on what you can get. Pizza Hut and McDonald's in the same meal. That's more than I've ever been able to do, and I've been free my entire life. Southern hospitality is a real thing, but if today's episode has taught me anything, it's that it doesn't exist in Mississippi. Alabama, for sure. Louisiana, definitely. But not here. All they have here is brutality. If you enjoyed this episode, what the fuck is wrong with you? I guess pay for a billboard and share it with truckers on the interstate so they can enjoy it too. I'm available on Odyssey and most podcast apps, except still not Apple Podcasts because I'm a fucking idiot and can't figure that out. I'm also on Rumble, where you'll find my Wish.com quality news videos and other random shit. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'm working on some other things as well, but at this current moment in time, I live at my day job, so don't expect much from me until 2024. First is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.